Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for this, this break during the course of a busy week. Uh, we can come together and for an hour or so uh, think through uh, something of what you have revealed to us of uh, the plan and progress and application uh, of the gospel. And uh, tonight as we think about uh, justification and this important uh, truth, uh, we pray for your blessing. Uh, we ask, Lord, once again, that we might see something of the beauty and the loveliness of our Lord Jesus, who died and rose again for our justification. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, just, uh, just a word of caution about the... I don't know whether you ever read these little quotations. You understand, I, I search for these little quotes uh, for hours and hours. Uh, and then you just turn the page and uh, you skip them. Uh, but just in case you didn't uh, skip them this evening, uh, don't get all bent out of shape that I, I quote the Catholic Catechism as the first quotation. I really should have flipped the order and put R.C. Sproul first uh, as the, the positive first and the negative second. Uh, but just as a, just as a little insight, uh, the, the 1994, the latest Catholic Catechism, uh, defines justification as the grace of the Holy Spirit has given, uh, has the power to justify us, that is, to cleanse us from our sins and to communicate, that's an important verb, to communicate to us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and through baptism. Well, of course, uh, that definition includes some, some good things, it mentions grace, it mentions uh, faith. Uh, so so uh, you might think, well, what's wrong with that definition of justification? And actually, there are a lot of things wrong with it, but two things in particular. One is the verb to communicate, uh, implying that righteousness is in some way infused uh, to us. So that this, is, this is justification that includes in some manner or form the idea that Justification transforms us in some way. Uh, and then, I suppose the kicker is at the end of the, of the definition, uh, and through baptism, and, and there, uh, whatever, whatever was trying to be conveyed beforehand uh, becomes very clear uh, that justification comes through uh, the act of baptism. Well, let's, uh, let's dive in, uh, and I want us to look at the doctrine of justification. If we have time, I want to say something about a new perspective on justification uh, and a distortion uh, of what we might call the old view of justification, the Reformed view, the Reformation view, the view of Luther and Calvin and the Westminster Confession. Uh, again, a reminder of where we are. Um, we're looking at the order of salutis, or the application of redemption. Uh, and uh, we're about halfway through uh, looking at justification tonight. I've just cited uh, in prayer a few minutes ago, Romans 4.25. Uh, 
Paul's definitive statement as he treats justification in the second half of Romans 3 and all of Romans 4. And, and where does he get his understanding of justification from in Romans 4 but Abraham and David? In other words, he gets it from the Old Testament. This is not a, this is not a doctrine that suddenly emerges at Pentecost that no one has ever heard of before. Paul proves the doctrine of justification from statements uh, that God makes to Abram uh, in, the, in the covenant that he makes with Abraham, that Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And forgive me, I'm quoting from my head now, but Genesis 15:18 is that right? Maybe I'm misquoting that. But, but the statement, you remember that statement in Genesis uh, with when God enters into a covenant with Abraham, 12, 15, 17, uh, Abraham believed and it was reckoned or it was credited to him for righteousness. Well, here's, here's the peroration of Paul's thought about justification, uh, speaking now about Jesus, that he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The death and resurrection uh, of our Lord Jesus uh, providing the grounds of our justification, uh, our being declared to be in a right standing uh, with God. Uh, much has been said about the importance of the doctrine of justification, and uh, forgive me, I meant to translate that Latin into English, but uh, it's the famous statement of Luther that justification is the article of the standing or falling of the church the standing or falling of the church. In other words, uh, that the church stands or falls in relationship to its understanding of justification. It is that important. Uh, Calvin, in an equally famous statement in the Institutes in Book 3, uses the metaphor of a hinge, uh, like the hinge on a door, uh, that uh, we must discuss them then, that should be as, as to bear in mind that this is the main hinge on which uh, religion turns. Uh, The article of the standing or falling of the church, the hinge on which the whole truth of God uh, turns. And uh, a statement is often quoted. I've never been able to actually locate the quotation. And if somebody can give me the book reference and page number, I'd be much obliged. Uh, Gehardus Voss, uh, the pivotal point around which everything moves. Sounds like Voss has been reading Calvin. Uh, but I'm not quite sure where Voss, uh, where Voss actually says that. But it's, an off, it's, a, it's a quotation that's, that often pops up. Now, let's get into the Old Testament and New Testament, just some background here uh, on the doctrine of justification uh, and, and, I, and the background to uh, the doctrine of justification lies uh, in the Old Testament in uh, a covenant setting, uh, the idea of integrity and of right standing. Uh, the, the Hebrew verb, the Hebrew word here, uh, tzaddik, uh, to, to, to be just or to be righteous. Uh, and it's the idea in the Old Testament not of um, making us or transforming us into righteous beings, but a declarative, uh, legal, uh, forensic sense. 
uh, that we are declared to be righteous. And uh, let me give, uh, let's look at three or four uh, just illustrations from the Old Testament beginning in Deuteronomy 25.1. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting, justifying the innocent and condemning the guilty. Now, you understand the, the metaphor there. The judge doesn't make that person guilty. He, he hears the evidence and he makes a legal declaration. Is this man guilty or is he innocent? It's a legal, forensic, declarative sense that's being employed uh, here. Uh, Proverbs 17 and verse 15 Uh, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. It's a a proverb. Uh, Those those who who justify the wicked and commend uh, and condemn uh, the righteous, uh, the proverb isn't saying that 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 you make them wicked. You simply declare those who are wicked to be righteous. Uh, you declare those who are righteous to be, to be wicked. If you, if you make that forensic declarative uh, assessment or, or, or judgment. Uh, I'm trying to get the sense here that the use of the term to justify in the Old Testament has a legal or a forensic sense to it. It's not the idea of transformation as would be the case, say, in sanctification, but it's, it's the, the idea of a forensic uh, legal uh, declaration. Uh, another verse from Job 32, uh, the Elihu uh, passages from, uh, from Job 32 to, to 37. Uh, then Elihu, the son of Berachel, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. So, so what is Job doing? Well, Job, Job is justifying himself. He's not making himself uh, righteous. He's declaring himself to be in the right and God to be in the wrong. Right? In, in the providence, in the, in the scenario that Job finds himself in, he, he is making the assessment, he's declaring himself to be righteous. It's a, it's a declarative uh, sense of the term uh, to justify. And uh, One more in Psalm 51, the psalm that we cite all the time as a confession of sin, David, the David and Bathsheba psalm. Uh, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And again, uh, the idea of justified there, that, 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 God may be, that God may be justified, that God may be in the right. It's a declarative forensic idea. So when you come into the New Testament, when the New Testament uses the word um, uh, justification, it it is based on the use of of that idea in the Old Testament. Uh, And and, 
Uh, we've just cited Romans 4.24 uh, about Jesus who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised again for our justification. Uh, uh, let's, let's look at the basis now in uh, number two, the basis for justification. Uh, and, and the issue uh, is, I think, brought to the surface uh, very clearly there in Romans 3.26. How can God be just? Now, not, not in the sense of how can God make himself right. Uh, God, is, God doesn't have to make himself right. He is right. He is righteous. But how can God be just and the justifier of the ungodly? How can God declare the ungodly to be just in a moral way, in a way that, that is, that is, uh, that is uh, uh, consonant with his righteous nature? Again, the, the, entire, the entire language of justification here is in the idea of uh, in, the, in the court of, of forensic legal declaration. The justification of the ungodly. The declaring of the ungodly to be in a right standing legally uh, with God. Uh, there's a sense here uh, too, uh, not just uh, the declaration of our right standing with God here and now, but also uh, the declaration of our right standing with God forever after and in the day to come, in, in, uh, the, uh, before the judgment seat of God. So Romans 5.19, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, Made in the sense of declared to be sinners. This is, this is the Adam-Christ parallel in Romans 5. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. The whole of humanity is reckoned to be in a wrong standing with God based on Adam's representative nature. Adam represented humanity. So as in Adam, all die. Not because everyone sins like Adam, that's true too, but because Adam was our representative. He, he, took, uh, he took the place of humanity. For, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, declared to be sinners, Right? That's the only way that you can get at, for example, uh, a doctrine uh, of original sin. That, that an infant child is declared to be a sinner before they are born. Right? Before they actually commit any sinful acts, they are already sinners. They sin because they are sinners. Right? Not, not they're sinners because they sin, but they sin because they are Sinners. Sinners in Adam. It's, it's the union with Adam that declares them to be sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made or declared to be righteous. Declared to be in a right standing with God. Uh, 
That's the, that's the extraordinary thing about justification. That you and I who believe in Jesus Christ are declared to be in a right standing with God. We are declared to be righteous. We are declared to be covenant keepers. We are declared to be law keepers. In Christ, God looks at us in Christ and what does he see? He sees a law keeper. He sees a covenant keeper. He sees somebody who is righteous. He declares us to be righteous. As righteous as Christ is righteous. Not not just a little bit righteous. Not just 70% righteous, not just 90% righteous, but 100% righteous. As righteous as Jesus Christ is righteous. So that Paul says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the consequence of justification. That there can be no condemnation. Because justification declares us to be in a right standing. So there's nothing for God to judge in that sense. That the judgment has already been born in Christ. That's the magnificence. That's the breathtaking uh, aspect uh, of the gospel. Now how is that possible? Well it's possible through what we've been already considering in a previous uh, study semester or so ago when we were looking at the person and work of Christ and we talked about the active and passive obedience of Christ. The the Reformation talked about the merifica commutatio, uh, the great great exchange, the the magnificent, the wonderful exchange. Our sins reckoned to Christ, his obedience, his righteousness reckoned to our account. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, he was made sin for us who knew no sin that we might be reckoned or that we might be credited the righteousness of God in him what are we in Christ the righteousness of God not not the righteousness of a good man not the righteousness of somebody that we might regard as a great man but the righteousness of God the righteousness of Christ Right, so let me, let me just underline here that justification uh, is a declarative uh, legal thing. Not, it's not a transformative thing. Uh, it, it doesn't change us or transform us. It is a declaration about us. And it's a declaration that in Christ we are righteous. We are not guilty in the negative. We are righteous in the positive so let's, uh, let's see how the Westminster Confession summarizes all that in uh, chapter 11 and section 1. And it says, Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. There's the doctrine of justification. Not by infusing righteousness into them. Right? Turn back to the opening page, the Catholic Catechism, to communicate to us the righteousness of God. There it is. That's, a, that's, that's the up-to-date Catholic Catechism on justification. Westminster Confession is saying no to that. 
It's not, it's not an infusion of righteousness. A righteousness that you get by, by partaking of the sacramental treadmill. The, the seven sacraments of the, of the Catholic Church, including penance and, 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 uh, and the supper and, and, and so on. And absolution and so on. Not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning. Right? What is a pardon? It's a, it's, a, it's a legal declaration by a judge. But pardoning, by pardoning their sins, by accounting and accepting. Accounting. Um, those of you who are accountants, those of you, uh, this, is a, this is ledger book. You, 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 you reckoned what, what is yours to Christ and you reckon what is Christ's to us. Right? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not legal, it's accountancy metaphor now. It's ledger metaphor. By accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. God accepts our person. What, what does he mean by person? Well, it means you. It means me. Who, who are you? I'm, I'm me. And I, am, and I am reckoned and accepted as righteous. As righteous as Jesus. As though I had never sinned. He accepts me. You can't believe this, can you? You're, you're, you're saying this can't possibly be true. I hope you're saying that. This sounds too good to be true. How can it... How can it possibly be that God would reckon and account and accept you as a person as righteous, as righteous as Jesus. Not more negatives. You know, sometimes when you do theology, you have to do the, it's like, it's like medicine used to be. You know, before you had machines and stuff that do all this, um, you, 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 you know, the old-fashioned way. So, so what do you do when somebody's sick? Well, you rule out certain things. It's not this, it's not that, it's not that. So it has to be maybe this or this or this. Right? So, so it's ruling certain things out. The grace of God appears so that we can say no to sin. There's a negative. Well, n- not for anything wrought in them or done by them. We're not reckoned righteous because God has done something in us. The the language of justification is entirely in the realm of the legal and forensic. We're not not reckoned righteous because a change has taken place in us. Because if that's the case, we're going to look at We're going to look at something within us. The reason I'm justified is because I'm regenerate. The the reason I'm justified is because a change has taken place. The reason I'm justified is because I have faith. And that's going to lead you to say, well, how much faith? The, the The only way you can be assured of total justification is that it is, as Luther would say, outside of us. It is, in, in Luther's language, extra nos. It is, it is outside of us. It is in Christ. Keep your eye on Jesus. Don't look within. Don't look for little changes within. 
not for anything wrought in them or done by them on, on the basis of works, but for Christ's sake alone. Now, if you have a pen or a highlighter, you know, underline alone. See, look, look back at that Catholic catechism again. Is there grace there? Yes, there is. The word grace is there. You know, people hear, you know, the Catholic Church talks about grace, so, so, so they must have an evangelical reformed understanding of justification. No, they do not. The, the important word here is alone. It's the sola that's important. It's, it's by faith alone. It's by, through grace alone. What Luther called the damnable plus. You can talk about grace and you can talk about faith, but there's a plus. It's grace plus baptism. It's grace plus absolution. It's grace plus a little bit of something that you do. Right? Alone. For Christ's sake, alone. Nor by imputing faith itself. Now, it's not, it's not Catholicism that's in the crosshairs here. It's evangelicalism that's in the crosshairs here. Because we tend to say, right, we tend to think like this. I'm justified by faith, but do I have enough faith? So that it's only those who have great faith or assured faith who are justified. And what have you done? You've turned your eyes inward again. Right? You're basing your justification on the quality now of your faith. Is it weak faith? Is it medium faith? Is it strong faith? Is it assured faith? Right? That's a tendency that in our circles, in evangelical uh, circles. And that's why it's saying, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing. We're not, we're not justified because we exercise faith. Now remember... And we'll come back to it in a minute. But remember, there are Arminians and semi-Pelagians who talk about free will. And if you have free will and you exercise faith based on that free will, you make that act of believing the basis of your justification. Right, that was the Reformation, that was the post-Reformation's um, argument um, with Arminianism. That, that free will became the work that justifies. I'm justified because I've exercised my will and I've exercised faith. Right? So not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is a gift of God. How many times do they have to say this? Right? They're saying it over and over. It's the same thing, but they're saying it over and over and over. And you hear the echo of Ephesians uh, 2, uh, that even faith is not, is not something that you can credit to yourselves, although we exercise that faith, as we said last week, but we exercise it because God makes us willing in the day of his power. It's, 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 of, it's of grace and not of, and, and not a, and not a work. 
Well, the instrument of justification and the instrument of justification is faith. It's the conduit, if you like, through which that legal declaration comes. Faith and faith alone. Right? Faith, and this is section 2 of the confession, faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone, there it is again, the sola, is the alone instrument of justification. And uh, uh, some, some, some of the prepositions, um, uh, and I won't go into all of the nuances of the Greek here with, with the genitive and dative rather than the accusative. Um, the, the New Testament does something that's quite extraordinary in its meticulousness. That in the actual use of the prepositions, um, that we are justified not on the basis of faith, but we are justified through the instrumentality of faith. And all of that becomes very clear uh, in kind of Greek 101, uh, which uh, those of you who can understand that can, can, can get that for yourselves, but I won't go into that tonight. Um, not never, 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 never on account of faith. Now, why faith? Because there's something about faith that conveys the idea there's nothing that I can boast in. Uh, faith is the, the empty hand. Uh, f- faith is, is uh, a, a, a look at the crucified one, the exclusion of boasting, not a result of works so that no one may boast, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2.9. Now there's been a little bit of discussion about, uh, about the time of justification. Um, Various, uh, various theologians, uh, Kuiper in the 19th century, William Twist, who was the chairman of the Westminster Assembly, uh, some others uh, who talk about uh, eternal justification, that, that we are justified in eternity. Um, and, and partly because if you... You know, sometimes the more Calvinistic you get and, and the more you want to stress then the sovereignty of God and the more you want to almost, almost deny any sort of temporal existential aspects to faith, you push, you push this all the way back into eternity uh, because it sort of safeguards, in order to safeguard any kind of human, uh, human involvement. Um, there's a kind of instinct that sometimes manifests itself that if, you, that if you emphasize work out your own salvation that all of a sudden you're on the, you're, you know, you're on the fence or maybe you've crossed over into Arminian territory so you need to emphasize a little bit more sovereignty. And I think that's what's, uh, that's what's taking place um, here. Uh, drop down, I'm going to pass all of that by, drop down to number five. Uh, justification and good works. Right? We're not justified on the basis of good works. 
Uh, it's by faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, but the New Testament does, does say that there is a judgment according to works. Um, various texts here, Second Corinthians 5.10, we shall all appear before the judgment seat of God to give an account of the deeds done in the flesh, whether good or evil. Uh, and Paul is talking there in Second Corinthians 5 about believers, uh, that there is a day of reckoning. Um, deeds done as Christians, not deeds done in order that we might become Christians. Actually, it's a very interesting thing, uh, the whole notion of rewards and punishments. I think if you were to ask, um, you know, if I, and it's something that I do when I ask my seminary class, for example, uh, how many of them believe in future rewards or punishments, and uh, pretty much these days uh, the entire class is going to say, no, they don't believe it. Uh, because they, they see the idea of rewards and punishments as somehow violating the gospel. Uh, we are justified apart from works, so there cannot be any basis upon which God judges works. Uh, and if you follow that logic through, then, then as Christians there's no basis for judging whether something is good, better, or best. Right? And, and, and certainly as Christians, we, we judge actions that are good, and some are better, and some are best, and some are just plain wrong. Um, so, so um, and, and I think if you went back into the 19th century or early part of the 20th century, um, evangelical, uh, solid, reformed evangelical writers uh, would certainly have, have believed in and, and talked about and preached on rewards and, and punishments. I've often asked the class, you know, when did you last hear a sermon uh, on the idea of future rewards and punishments? And, and these days, pretty much the answer is going to be, uh, never. Uh, and I think that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's an imbalance here from what Scripture actually teaches. And uh, I think Second Corinthians 5.10 would be a, a, a classic example of Paul saying that we must all, speaking of Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of God. Uh, and some are going to be rewarded more than others, even within the orbit of grace. Jesus uh, speaks in a parable of some inheriting ten cities and some five and some, uh, and some just one. Some just get, uh, get uh, Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, and others get Dallas and, uh, and, and uh, San Francisco and London and Berlin uh, to follow the metaphor through. Right? So, so, so that, you know, I think, I think there's a there's a, kind of, there's a kind of idea that floats about in our circles that grace means that we're all going to be dealt with exactly the same. It's a kind of Christian form of almost communism or it's a kind of socialism baptized with, with, with something they think of as the gospel. So that because, because we're not justified by anything that we do, we're, we're, we're all going to be treated exactly the same. And there's a kind of kind of equality to, to, to the future. Um, and, I, and I think that the New Testament doesn't, uh, doesn't actually convey that. Um, it, it, is one of the, it is one of the motivations for holiness that God is going to, that there's a day of reckoning, that there's a day of accountability. Well, another issue uh, that, that has to be addressed in terms of justification is um, what is James talking about and uh, 
Uh, and again, I, I, I haven't time tonight to look at all of the details of James's argument. That would be a two-hour sort of examination in itself. But, but James talks about uh, faith without works is, is dead. Um, and and the, the way through that passage, I think in James uh, chapter 2 and verses 14 through 26, remember that Luther looked at that passage and, and declared it to be a right epistle of straw uh, because he looked at it solely through the lens of justification by faith. But justification by faith, what does the Westminster Confession say? That faith that justifies is never alone. It is always a accompanied by works so that the one who is declared righteous the regenerate the regenerate one who's indwelt by the holy spirit will manifest that justification in a life of good works because the man who says that he's justified but there are no good works to to evidence that justification that faith is dead. That faith isn't real faith. It's not real, it's not real justification. I think that's what James is, is, uh, is trying to say. The conclusion, uh, point four there uh, on page six, uh, James 2.14. What good is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, James isn't saying that we're saved by a little bit of faith and works. What he's saying is that somebody who says that he's justified by faith but lives an ungodly life, he, he isn't justified. It's not true faith. It's not true justification. So, so the tendency of the doctrine of free grace to encourage a life of of, of ungodliness, shall we sin that grace may abound? Paul's uh, question. Now, uh, today, uh, justification is uh, under uh, a great deal of uh, fire. Uh, we, we have seen in the last uh, quarter century or so, and certainly within the last uh, 20 years, and, and especially in the last possibly 15 years, uh, an, a, a sea change uh, in uh, the, uh, the evangelical world uh, as to the understanding of justification. And the old uh, understanding of justification, the understanding of justification as, as I've just given it in the Westminster Confession, chapter 11, uh, has been seriously questioned uh, by something called uh, the new perspective and, and more accurately the new perspectives uh, on, on Paul. So let me take you on a, on a very quick sort of fire hydrant uh, view of the new perspective on Paul in about uh, six minutes. Um, partly this arose uh, after the Second World War, post-Holocaust, I think the Christian church, generally speaking, was a little sensitive to Christians saying negative things about Jews and Judaism, uh, as Paul does uh, frequently in the New Testament. And I think that that provided the sociological backdrop 
to wanting to reassess how the Christian church viewed Judaism. Then um, some historical research was done by men by the names of W.D. Davis and E.P. Saunders uh, and, and others uh, in the late 40s, 50s, early 60s, uh, picked up in the 70s and 80s uh, by folk like, uh, like Jimmy Dunn and N.T. Wright, who's now become a very familiar uh, name uh, to us, that suggests that, that the church, and particularly the Protestant church and the Reformation church, have had misunderstood the nature of Judaism in the period, in the Second Temple period, from the period of the return of Babylon through to the time of Jesus and Paul, so that the Jews in Jesus' day, people like Saul of Tarsus, um, that, that the Reformation misunderstood them, and uh, the research kind of purported that Second Temple Judaism was not a religion of works righteousness, but actually was motivated by grace. Now, the traditional understanding, the traditional rubric was that that Judaism was like medieval Catholicism. It was a religion based on a ceremonial obedience, a treadmill of obedience, um, trying to earn and merit the favor of God. So, so Judaism and, med- and medieval Catholicism were, were identical, identical in their nature, and therefore uh, Paul, the converted Paul, and Luther were addressing the same thing. Uh, and, and that paradigm has been seriously questioned. Uh, that, that research into Second Temple Judaism uh, has been also now, by, 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 by those who hold to the old view of justification, that, that research has, has been questioned. Um, and, uh, but but what, what that view uh, brought forth was a view that said the Jews of the first century were not The problem with the Jews of the first century was not that they were trying to earn their salvation, but that they were trying to keep the message of redemption to themselves. And the passage in Galatians 2, when when Paul goes to Antioch, and Peter, you remember, eating... Uh, eating non-kosher food, and then when when the men of James come up to Jerusalem, all of a sudden uh, that that changes, and and it's all back to kosher food again. What's the issue? The issue is that that Peter is is engaging in a kind of racism, a, a racism, not anti-Semitism, but the reverse of that, an anti-Gentilism, and the gospel comes. In the first century, this is the new perspective in sort of broad strokes, that the gospel comes and says, the gospel isn't just for you Jews who who obey food laws and have circumcision and obey Sabbath laws and have these certain boundary markers that sociologically identify you as the covenant people of God, but the gospel is also for non-Jews, Gentiles. That's the gospel. So the gospel is not about how can I be saved or how can I have a right relationship with God. The gospel is that I can belong to this covenant community too. And, and the new perspective on Paul, on justification, 
terms like the works of the law, uh, the righteousness of God uh, in the New Testament are to be understood not in terms of how can I get into a right relationship with God or how can I be saved, but the fundamental question of the New Testament is how can I belong to the covenant community? And, and, and the, the short answer of the new perspective is the way you get into the covenant community is you join a church. You get baptized. Well, hello. That's what Catholicism was saying in the medieval period. Right? So, so the, the new perspective on Paul changes the question of justification from the area of how can I be in a right relationship with God to a sociological question, how can I belong to the covenant community? So one of the things that's happened, and it's happened, um, it's happened among very conservative publishers, um, that, the, that the understanding of justification has changed, and changed dramatically and, and radically, and in, in an entirely wrong and, and unbiblical uh, way uh, to suggest that the language of justification has to do with my, my belonging to a group, my belonging to a covenant a community, rather than addressing the question, how can I be in a right relationship um, with with God. Now, uh, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a gross oversimplification of the new perspective on Paul. Uh, some of us, uh, perhaps in this room, are, are aware of the terminology new perspective on Paul. But it, sadly, I mean, it's affected some very conservative publishers and publishers that when I was at seminary, you know, 40 years ago, uh, was was uh, a, a publisher that you could absolutely trust and rely on, and if they published a book, you knew this book was at least going to be sound evangelically on the doctrine of justification, and that's not the case anymore. And uh, uh, you know, if if you were, you know, I wouldn't have believed when I, I mean, 40 years ago, if you'd have come to me and said that the evangelical church was going to be confused about justification, I wouldn't have believed you. You know, about, about the answer to the question, how can you be saved? You know, if you can't answer that question, you've got, you've got, you've got 60 seconds before somebody dies. And, and, and he's, saying to you, he's saying to you, how can I be saved? What's your answer? If your answer is you need, to, you need to identify with the covenant community and receive the boundary markers of that covenant community, which are baptism and the Lord's Supper, then it's over. You know, it's the wrong answer. Um, that's how important this issue is. Um, I think at the end here, um, look at the text again, Second uh, Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be justified, that we might be in a right standing with God. 
that's why Luther, I think, said this is the article of the standing or falling of the church. And you get justification wrong and the entire church collapses um, with it. Now, there are a million questions, I am sure, and uh, we'll have a Q&A session later in the, in the semester. Um, but it's time for us to segue into our time of prayer. So let me, uh, let me pray, and uh, if you're leaving, if you do so quietly, but we're going we're gonna to segue into a time of prayer in a minute. But let me close this part. Father, we thank you. Uh, thank you for this wonderful, extraordinary truth that you, you take sinners like us and you declare us to be in a right standing with you through the instrumentality of faith, faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And we bless you and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.